we're going to be looking at this morning, Matthew 24 and 25 in Revelation. And you walk away from these texts in awe, and all you can say is, I'm here to worship you, God. Thank you so much for Chris and music team for leading us. Well, I have always been fascinated by the whole concept of rescue. That someone would come back for me if I needed help. Maybe that's part of why I became a cop. This idea of rescuing someone. I know I believed this when me and my friends got lost backpacking up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. We were high, 12,000, 13,000 feet lost. I knew that if we didn't return soon enough, if we couldn't figure out our map and our compass, that someone would come looking. I imagine that's what a shipwrecked sailor is thinking as he floats on his piece of wood. I assume he is not just clinging to that wood, but he's clinging to the hope that someone out there will come back. Now, if you think about it, this is radically different from the prisoner guilty of his crime who is awaiting the axe man to come and take off his head. Radically different. Both the shipwrecked sailor and the guilty prisoner, they're waiting for someone to come, aren't they? But the end result is radically different. You see, during the rapture, Christ came back to rescue the church. That's what he's going to do. He's going to rescue the church from the coming tribulation so that they do not have to endure the wrath of God. But when Christ comes back to earth the second time, it's to bring judgment so that he might restore his righteous kingdom. See, all of us in this room are waiting for the return of Christ. You realize that, don't you? Every single person in here is waiting for his return. The question is whether he's coming back for you as redeemer or whether he's coming back for you as judge and executioner. So this morning, I want us to follow close on the heels of the Lord Jesus Christ as He comes in power and glory from heaven to earth. Now, just to remind you where we've been, I've got a chart up on the screen that Jacob is going to put up there for us. Thank you, Jacob. There it is. Just to remind you where we've been, you realize this little introduction piece gets longer and longer. We are halfway through the tribute, I mean, halfway through the end time series. I know you don't think of this as a tribulation halfway through. Where are we? Well, the church has been snatched up from earth to heavens. Christ meets them in the air in the twinkling of an eye, takes them up to heaven. And from that point on, we come to the judgment seat of Christ, where Christians are rewarded according to the things they've done, both good and bad. While that's happening in heaven, Kyle walked us last week through the tribulation period where there are seven years of tribulation that are designed to bring Israel to repentance and to gather the nations to judgment on earth. 
Well, sometime after the judgment seat of Christ and before the second coming, you've seen this for weeks. What is that marriage of the Lamb? I was supposed to get to it on the judgment seat message, and then I was supposed to get to it this morning, and I am sad to say I'm not going to really get to it on either. But I at least want to mention it so you know what it is. This is a mini message within a message, and I promise it'll be short. This is the marriage of the Lamb. I don't know if you've ever studied this or heard this. Marriage of the Lamb, what does that mean? You see, this is where the church is married to her groom, Christ. It's a joyous event. I mean, how many times throughout the New Testament is the church referred to as the bride of what? The bride of Christ. It's an incredibly important event for Jesus. Why? Because he gave his life to save the church and to make her holy. I've got a verse up on the screen for you. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. We know this. Just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. He might purify her, make her clean without any spot or wrinkle so that someday he's going to present her pure. Well, guess when this happens? Here in Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. And this happens right after the judgment seat, right before the second coming of Christ. Now, why do I mention this? Why? Because this is the lavish, unending love of Christ for you and for me. I don't know the last wedding you've been to. I have officiated a number of weddings in my time. I have the best seat in the house, quite frankly. I'm standing in the center. The groom is standing next to me, and he's typically shaking or with either with nerves or anticipation or both. The whole party walks in, and who's last? The bride. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never been to a wedding where we had to coax the bride down. Come on, it'll be okay. You already said yes. Just come on. Come on all the way. I mean, we didn't have to put her in a straitjacket or wheel her in a wheelchair because she didn't want to come. In fact, what typically happens? Where are her eyes? She's not looking at me. She's not looking at you. Who is she looking at? The love of her life. And as she begins to walk down the aisle, I'm, and again, I'm the one seeing this because you're looking at her over the heads of everyone in front of you, but she's like trying to control her pace and walk majestically and stately. Why? Because that's what a bride does. Otherwise, what would she be doing? Sprinting into his arms. Why do I mention this? Church, does this match your affection for your groom? Do you have this love for Christ where you can't wait to be fully, perfectly, for eternity, reunited with your Savior, the one who gave himself for you? Now, you see why I couldn't just pass over that. That is a beautiful picture. So what happens right after that? Well, as the tribulation is going, the judgment seat has taken place up in heaven, the tribulation is happening on earth, the marriage of the Lamb is taking place. And then right after that, as you see on our chart, which is going to pop up at any moment, we have the second coming 
So today we're going to look at the events of Christ's second coming. And, and these events really serve as a transition point from the present evil age to the righteous kingdom of Christ. This is a future event where Christ returns to the earth and it is characterized by both judgment and restoration. So Jacob, you can go ahead and put it back on our title slide. There it is. Thank you. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning examining five aspects of Christ's second coming, five aspects of Christ's second coming. And I put all of the key texts there for you. If you want to study this on your own, they're on your handout. I'm sorry, you do not have any place to write on your handout. But I wanted you to have the verses so that you could at least go and study it on your own. So let's look at the first aspect of Christ's second coming, and it is the certainty of Christ's coming, the certainty of Christ's coming. And this was prophesied not only in the Old Testament by the prophets, by Christ himself, and also by the apostles. Let's start with the Old Testament prophecies. No, I am not going to read all of those verses. Look how many verses, and I had to choose. There's more. Literally, a fifth of your page could have been Old Testament prophecies foretelling the second coming of Christ. These are just the main ones. Let me read two for you, Daniel 7.13, where Daniel prophesies this. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Again, Kyle talked about all the terms, the Son of Man and the the day of the Lord, all those things last week. This is Christ coming. What about Job 19.25? Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even Job had confidence that Christ was his Redeemer and he would come someday and stand on the earth to rule. Well, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14. Some of you did not know there was a book called Zechariah. That's okay. It is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, go left, two books. Zechariah. I'm going to give you a little time to get there. I just want you to know, don't ever be ashamed if you have to look up the table of contents. That is okay. All of us had to do it at one point, all right? Zechariah 14, starting in verse 1. Here is what Zechariah prophesies. He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the enemy will not be cut off from the city. The rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. It's pretty amazing. In the context of this passage is the siege of Jerusalem that leads to the return of the Lord. In fact, this is the day of the Lord that Kyle talked about last week. The day of the Lord when Christ's feet finally come from heaven to earth. And where do His feet land? The Mount of Olives. 
Again, in the rapture, did Christ's feet ever touch the ground? No, He was in the air. That's why we believe this is not the rapture, this is a second coming. And what happens? He goes to war against those who have rebelled and rejected Him. Now, since this prophecy did not occur during Jesus' first coming, this must refer to His second coming. Well, what about Christ's personal promise? Again, you've got a number of passages where Christ Himself prophesies, I am coming. In fact, Christ repeatedly assured the disciples He would return a second time. Why? Because they constantly asked Him. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 29. Again, if Jesus is talking about this, and wouldn't you want to know? I don't blame the disciples. But in Matthew 24, starting in verse 29, notice what they say. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The disciples are asking, what's going to happen? What are the signs? Jesus begins to answer here. Verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Again, you're already seeing some differences between the rapture and here. The rapture, he, Jesus, snatches the church. Here, who does the gathering? Not Jesus, who? He sends the angel to do it. So we believe this is referring to the second coming. And again, what does this coming follow? Jesus himself says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will come. Again, these events parallel what we saw in Daniel 7 and what we're about to see in Revelation 19, as Christ comes from heaven to earth to bring judgment to those who rejected him. How do we know this? How do the people respond? The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will rejoice. Dance and praise in the streets. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? They will mourn, weep. Why? Because Christ is coming as judge. I mean, it makes me think of those movies like Braveheart and other movies where you have the little underdog army and they gather together and they do all their little things to get pumped up, beat their chest with their spear and shout and scream and paint their face. And they're all pumped up. And then across the valley, over the hill, who comes? One soldier, two soldiers, three soldiers, four. And then there's hundreds. And then there's thousands. And what happens to these warriors is they see the army spreading across the hill, across the valley. Their yells become a little bit quieter. Their hearts begin to race a little bit more because they realize we are going to get killed. Look at the size of that army. 
the Son of Man appears in the sky and all of these things happen, if you are on the earth and you look into heaven and you see Christ coming, and remember there, we're going to get to this in a moment, there are armies waiting to do battle against Christ. What an amazing scene in the heavens. They're not rejoicing. They're not confident of their victory. No, they're mourning. And so this angel gathers together all of the elect from heaven and earth really to be for the beginning of the millennial kingdom in verse 31. So Christ himself promised the Son of Man, I am coming a second time. Well, what about the apostles? Again, you've got a number of passages there you can, can read on your own. I, I at least want to draw your attention to Revelation 19. We're going to be flipping back and forth from Matthew to Revelation if you want to keep your finger in one. Revelation chapter 19. This is where the Apostle John, starting in verse 11, Revelation 19, 11. John says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. John sees this vision of what is to come. Christ seated on a white horse. Now why is Christ seated on a white horse? Well, in Roman times, a white horse would be used by an army general to ride through a city that they just demolished. So when the general is riding on a white horse through your city, it means you have just been vanquished. That general is victorious. So when John is seeing this vision and he sees Christ on a white horse, he's living in that period of time. What does he immediately think? Christ is on a horse symbolizing what? Victory. Conqueror. Reality is Christ came the first time in humility writing what? Triumphal entry. What was he writing? It wasn't some white steed out of a western. It was a donkey. The lamb came in humility and shed his blood for his bride. That's not the picture here. He's coming on a war horse as a conqueror. And John begins to describe what he sees. He who sat on it is called what? Faithful and true. Faithful and true. Christ is being faithful and true to his word. He promised he would come, and John is seeing him keeping his word. He is coming back. What does that mean for you and me today? It means we can trust Christ yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I don't care what you're facing. Christ is faithful and true. He will keep his word to you. If you would but fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, Hebrews 12, 2. What about the unrighteous seeing Christ appearing in the clouds on a white horse? What does it say? And in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is holy wrath. Well, that's the certainty of Christ coming from the Old Testament, from Christ himself, from the New Testament. What about the, the nature of Christ's coming? Well, first of all, it's real and visible. It's going to be real and visible. 
Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. You're seeing a, a pattern here? Christ comes in the clouds. Christ Himself, personally, He's in the clouds, physically, and every eye will see Him visibly. Matthew 24, 27 says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's amazing. Christ uses this picture of weather patterns. Now, Texas, we get weather, don't we? Sometimes when that gulf disturbance comes up through the east of us, and then it begins to swing over across us. I remember standing on my porch looking to the east and seeing this huge thundercloud system. And I remember seeing lightning just flashing down as it approached me. I don't know why it made me want to run around out in the street. Something about lightning and rain and the thunder and the wind. I know, I need counseling. Pray for me. But when this happens in Matthew 24 and the lightning flashes and the Son of Man appears, do you think people are going to want to run out into the street to meet Him? Some will. Those who see Him not as judge, not as executioner, but as redeemer. But for those who have not received Him as King and Lord, they will be hiding in terror. So His second coming will be real, physical, and visible. B, it'll be triumphant and glorious triumphant and glorious. Now, I do just want to note, not only will this be real and visible, it'll be triumphant and glorious. There's no way that anybody is going to miss this thing because it's not just Jesus. There's an entire heavenly army that's going to come with Him. Look at Revelation 19.14. We're already there. Revelation 19.14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Look, Texas, if you don't know how to ride a horse now, you will then. Who is this army? Well, if we had time, had time to go back and look at the marriage of the Lamb, we would see the marriage of the Lamb. In fact, let's just do that. It's right up there in verse 9. This is the marriage of the Lamb. Look at verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in what kind of clothing? Fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Does that sound familiar to you? What are these armies dressed in? Fine linen, bright and clean. Guess who the army is following Christ? The bride of Christ becomes the army of Christ. Buckle up. It's not just us, it's not just the church, because who is the elect from Matthew 24, 31 that the angel gathers? Well, we believe it's also the resurrected saints and the angels who will all be part of this glorious, glorious army. So it is going to be triumphant and glorious. In fact, the second coming of Christ will inspire awe, it will inspire terror on all of the inhabitants of the earth. 
because His glory and His irresistible judgment will bring the nations to their knees. If we had time to read that whole passage in Zechariah in, in chapter 14, we would see that, that, that they actually get a plague. God gives them a plague. And it says it literally rots their flesh, their eyes, and their tongues. Even the animals get it. There's a great panic that falls upon them from the Lord. How triumphant and glorious is this coming? Well, let's continue to read our section in Revelation 19, starting in verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I just want to pause for a moment. I cannot believe how many commentators read that and spend pages trying to figure out what the name is. What does the verse say? No one knows. Give it a rest. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. Let's keep going. Verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, here we are, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Church, behold your Savior. King of kings and Lord of lords. So what does it mean when it says Christ's eyes are a flame of fire? That sounds ominous. It simply means he has holy wisdom and insight. With the eyes, he sees all. It doesn't matter where you run in that time. He sees you. He knows. Christ was wearing diadems. That's just another word. It's literally in the Greek, diadem simply means crown. And notice it's not just one, it's many. What's the point of a, a crown? If you walk into a room and there's someone wearing a crown, well, first of all, you're going to think, what in the world? But let's just say, you know, you're back with Lancelot and Arthur and all of that, right? You're in that story and you walk in a room and there's one person wearing a crown. What does it mean? That's the king. He has... Authority. He has power. Respect him. Honor him. Obey him. Christ is wearing many crowns. Again, no one's going to mistake him as anything other than the king. Not a king. The king. Notice we keep going, and in verse 13 it says, Christ's robe is dipped in blood. Now think about this. For the most part, when Christ and blood take place in the same, what are, what are, where is the blood? Whose blood is it? It's Christ's blood. The blood of Christ shed for you. He shed his blood for you throughout the whole Bible. Typically, when you see Christ in blood, it's his blood being shed for you. That is not the case here. This blood is not his. Who's it? Is it? It's his enemies. This is not the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the blood of those who had the gall to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and say, no. The fact that it's dipped in blood shows Christ is the victor. 
And this is possibly my favorite part of this whole thing. When I was in junior high and a young boy, I loved this picture. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Sharp sword. I used to think Jesus actually had a sword on a white horse, and he was riding through the streets of Los Angeles, chopping people in half. What's this imagery? What's the picture here? Why is a sharp sword coming from the mouth of Jesus? Because what is the power in a word when spoken by God? Think about Genesis, and with one word, what did God do? From nothing came life. And here, with one word, what can Jesus do? Bring life to death. In fact, I don't know if you've realized this. Who gets to carry the sword? The armies are on a white horse. You don't have any weaponry. In fact, you're not even in the battle. You're just, okay, Jesus, we're here. We got your back. Call us if you need us. Who's the one doing the fighting? Who's the one with the sword? Who's the one with the rod of iron ruling? It's Christ. Christ doesn't really need you and me as an army. We're there to support him. We're there just to show that we're with him. But he's the one who does it all. Are you feeling a little awestruck? I mean, just imagine that scene in Braveheart where William Wallace and all of his little Scottish dudes get together with their little skirts. And William Wallace says, okay, guys, watch this. And he just walks up to the king of England and says, okay, bring it on. I got my battle axe. And he just kills all the English soldiers. You're in the army going, why do we even get dressed up? I could have been eaten and having mead. You'd be like, wow, William Wallace is really on fire. And you would be in awe, wouldn't you? Who is center stage here? <laughs> Christ. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Notice at the end of verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. You know what a winepress is, right? It's that big vat, you stick the grapes in it, and then people walk and tread the grapes so that when they squish the grapes with their feet, what comes out of the little thing and into the vase? Juice. Now think about that picture. Christ stomping on his enemies so that the juice flows through the streets. This is going to be incredibly bloody. Why do you think his robe is dipped in it? Think about this, church, next time you decide to say no to Christ. Then verse 17 and 19. I'm not going to read it. You can read it, but it's basically the battle of Armageddon, the final phase of this battle that Kyle talked about last week. And as Kyle mentioned accurately, this is more of an execution. They don't stand a chance. Christ is coming to judge and to destroy to conquer them. For all those who have opposed Christ will be destroyed. 
And in fact, it's going to be a feast for the birds. Notice what verse 21 says, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We're not talking setting up bird feeders here. Hey, can we get a couple more hummingbird feeders, please? Again, here in Texas, we have what? You know something is dead when what is circling it? Those giant, ugly, scary, prehistoric things. Vulture things. What are those things called? Thank you. Buzzards. We don't have those in California. We have nice, pretty birds. I know we have pretty birds in Texas, too. I don't want you to write me nasty notes. Just imagine how many birds are going to be flying overhead at the end of this thing. How many birds, the stench of it, the flesh rotting in the sun. In fact, that's what John says, come assemble for the great supper of God. Well, who's the great supper? It's the flesh in verse 18 of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of men, both free men and slaves and small and great. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you are a king or a slave. If you stand against Christ on this day, you will lose and provide a scrumptious dinner for the birds. The second coming is going to be triumphant and it's going to be glorious. See, the nature of it, it's also to earth and at Jerusalem. Again, I don't want to belabor this point. Remember Acts 1, 11 and 12, we've mentioned it numerous times. It's the transfiguration. The apostles are standing there, disciples are standing there and Jesus goes from the Mount of Olives up to heaven. There's two angels and what do they say? Don't be surprised. The same way that he's going, he's going to what? Return. Well, I don't know if you caught that, but when we, when we read Zechariah 14.4, what did Daniel prophesy? Where, when Jesus comes back a second time, where will he return? To the Mount of Olives. Isn't that amazing? Almost as if God knew what was going to happen and planned it from the very beginning. Almost as if. Messiah the king has come to judge the nations at Jerusalem you can read Joel 3 later. And then prior to the millennium, and again, I just mentioned this because I'm going to talk more about this next week when we get into the millennial kingdom. But this is significant because some of us believe that, that the second coming is going to happen before the millennial kingdom. Others believe there is no millennial kingdom. Others believe it's going to happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. So we're going to get into all of that next week. Uh, some of you are saying, I don't really care. I'm just a pan-millennial. I just think it's all going to pan out. Some of you, that will hit you around your appetizer at lunch. We call this a premillennial view. Why? Because Christ's second coming happens pre-millennial kingdom, before the millennial kingdom. That's what our church believes. That's what I hold. So that's what you, this is really confusing. So I'm a pre-trib, pre-mill Christian. Yes. And even if you're not, we can still be friends. So prior to the millennium, come back more next week and I will build a case for that. Now, what are the signs preceding Christ's coming? We've looked at its certainty. We've looked at its nature. What are the signs preceding? Now, remember, were there signs preceding the rapture? No. Remember, 1 Thess 4, twinkling of an eye. In a moment, 
like that. It happens. Well, here, the second coming, we actually have signs preceding it, both in the heavens and on the earth. First, in the heavens. Now, this is the text that I was referring to earlier. Turn over to Matthew 24, verse 3. And I told you we'd be flipping back and forth. Matthew 24, verse 3. The disciples want to know, what are these signs? So here in Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I mean, you can't blame them. They want to know when is, what's going to be the sign to kick all this thing off. Now, what was the sign? Look over at verse 30, and we read it already. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What is the answer to the disciples' questions? It's not what is the sign, but rather who. And who is the sign? Jesus Christ himself is the sign. That's exactly what Christ says. I'm going to be the sign, the sign of all of this. That's why on, on earth, Revelation 1-7 says that every eye will see him. During the rapture, you don't actually see Christ. If you are left behind during the rapture, you never see Jesus in the clouds. Remember how I pointed that out? It happens in the twinkling of an eye. I'm sorry, we are not going to be floating up to heaven with all the resurrected dead for the rapture. That's not going to happen. It happens instantaneously, and then we're in heaven. That's the rapture. But here, the second coming, Scripture makes it clear, every eye will see him. And then he comes to earth. Of course, all the tribulation judgments described in Revelation from chapter 16 to 18 will also be an indication that the coming of Christ is near. Kyle covered all that last week, things like sun and moon darkening, stars falling, you know, little things. But it's not just in the heavens, it's also on the earth. There's going to be a number of earthly events that will serve as a sign that Christ is returning, like the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem, Matthew 24, 15. Kyle talked about this last week. The covenant of the Antichrist with Israel in Daniel 9. The appearance of the two witnesses, Revelation 11. When those two guys come on the scene, you've got to study these two guys. It's incredible. When they come on the scene and they start doing the things that God is equipping and, and calling them to do, it is going to be miraculous. I'm sorry, Benny Hinn thinks he can do miracles? Uh Uh-uh. And the appearance of the two witnesses, you know, it's near. There's going to be earthquakes of unprecedented intensity, Revelation 6, Revelation 11. And then there's plagues, there's famines, there's terrors, according to Luke 21, 11. There's going to be signs in the heavens, there's going to be signs on the earth. Christ is coming, and while the precise hour of Christ's return will not be known, even though these signs are indicating that we're getting near to when He will come, the reality is the signs will still be unmistakable. In fact, it's interesting, I didn't have time to get into this, but Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus compares the second coming, the signs, to the signs of Noah. Why does He do that? Well, think about it. What was Noah doing during those days? He was preaching, if you don't get on this boat, this ark, you're going to die. There's a flood coming. That was a sign. And then what did he do? They said no, so what did he do? He built the ark. 
Every day those people walked by and saw that sign, and what did they do? They mocked him, they ridiculed him. Did they know that the flood was coming soon? Yes, he told them and he was building a boat. Did they know exactly when the rain would begin, when the, the rain would come out, the water and the flood would happen? Did they know? No. And so that's why Jesus uses uh, the whole example of Noah is there are signs. You may not know the exact moment. So that's where all the, the, the passages that Christ will come like a thief in the night. Those are referring to the second coming, not the rapture. The thief in the night passages are not the rapture. That's the second coming. And Jesus explains it there in Matthew 24. Well, you can look at that more on your own. There are signs preceding Christ's coming. Let's look at the results of Christ's coming. Fourthly, well, first of all, we have a judgment on the unbelieving. When Christ comes from heaven to earth, there is going to be judgment for the unbelieving. In fact, this is the first and most dramatic effect of Christ's return. It's going to be the judgment of all of those who have rejected Christ and have opposed His coming kingdom. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9, Paul says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Again, this is not the rapture. The rapture, there's not the flaming fire. This is the second coming. Verse 8, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And so Paul is describing this, this fire that comes. Again, fire being a symbol of judgment. What does it mean when it says dealing out retribution to those who do not know God? It simply means to give them their full punishment. Well, who gets that full punishment, that retribution? He says, to those who don't know God, to those who do not obey His gospel. Could it be any clearer? It's not enough to know truth. It's not enough to say you know God. I know God. I have a relationship with God. I mean, I don't follow Him. Well, at least mostly I don't. I mean, I, sometimes I do, but I'm a Christian. I know God. I know Jesus. I know the Bible. I go to church. It's not enough. Because if you are saved by the precious blood of Christ, God transforms your heart. What will happen? Change. And you will begin to change to be more like Christ. You can't stop that. So there will be judgment on the unbelieving. And there's going to be three different groups will be the object of this judgment at this time. First, the unbelieving in Israel. And I wish I had time to go into this. Uh, Matthew 25, verses 1 to 30. You've heard these two parables taught. I know we've done a series on the parables before of the ten virgins and the talents. Do you realize that the context, this is talking about Israel in the second coming. That's what the context of these two parables is. is talking about. We know this because in verse 32... Jesus turns the next section to address the unbelieving Gentile nations. So it seems as if he deals with, with Israel in the first part, and then he turns his attention to the Gentiles, which we're going to get to in the next section. So what is it about these two parables? Well, 
He's addressing the foolish and unprepared virgins, the one who aren't prepared for the groom's coming. They don't have oil in their lamps, so they leave. The groom comes, the ones who are prepared go in, they're left outside. They weren't ready for the coming of the Messiah. And then what about the talent? One takes the talent and goes and does what's pleasing to the Lord with it. The other one says, well, I was afraid, and you're an exacting man, so I just went and buried it in the ground. He was unfaithful and wicked. So not only does the unprepared virgin get left out of the wedding ceremony, which means what? If you're not in the wedding ceremony with the groom, who is who? Christ. Then what does that make you? An unbeliever. And in verse 30, it says, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just in case you didn't get it, does that sound like a happy place to go to? Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that sound like to you? I'm not talking about the cartoon version. What does that sound like? It's the lake of fire. It's hell. There will be a judgment. So even though there will be many Jews who are saved in the tribulation, for those who still reject Christ as Messiah, they are sentenced to hell at the second coming. What about unbelieving Gentiles? Well, this is where we come to that next section. If you look at Matthew 25, 31, this is that, that next section where he turns his attention to the Gentile nations. Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together. Oops, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. You were wondering what translation I was reading from. Matthew 25, 31. There we are. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Again, this is that chart where we have not the great white throne, but what throne is this? In fact, Jacob, I've got a chart up there that they can see. I showed this once before. Remember, the blue is the Bema seat. We talked about that. That's the raptured church being judged. Now we're talking about the red, the second coming of Christ, and that's where we're in this phase of judgment. Well, where does the great white throne happen? It's way over on the green. All of the unsaved at the end of the millennial kingdom, that is when the great white throne happens. Sometimes people get confused because they're talking about a throne here, but he's, he's dividing sheep from the goats. So they think that's what the great right throne is going to be like, that when people come to the great right throne, oh, I might be a sheep, I pray I'm a sheep, that I get into heaven even by the skin of my teeth. These are two totally separate judgments. When you come to the great white throne, you are damned. The whole point of the great white throne, sorry, Carl, I'm stealing your thunder, I know. The whole point of the great white throne is you are sentenced to hell for all of eternity. This is a different throne. In fact, we believe that this throne represents Christ's right to rule with divine authority on earth to establish his millennial kingdom. And it's actually a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Why did we do a whole message on biblical covenants? To show you that they become the framework for eschatology. And even though I didn't get to explain the Davidic covenant ex extensively, I put it up on the screen for us. Jacob, if you could get that up on the screen... Thank you, sir. This is the Davidic covenant. Let's read it. 
when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you realize I did not pick Psalm 132 to read this morning? It just so happened as if by chance that in the order of Psalms, Psalm 132 fell on today. Did did you realize that as I was reading Psalm 132 for Scripture, it was talking about David and the line of David and someone from your, your, your line would sit on a throne? Where does that come from? When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. What is this promising? Who is the descendant of Christ? What did the Abrahamic covenant? From you, Abraham, a Messiah would come through the line of David. There would be a seed from you. And he is going to rule on your throne. Has Christ ruled on David's throne yet? Have you driven by the church downtown Houston and seen Christ ruling on a throne? Has that happened yet? Did it happen during his first coming? Is it going to happen during the rapture? No. So when will this happen? It's going to happen right here at the second coming, at this sheep and goat judgment. In fact, this is what the angel says to Mary in Luke 1, 32-33. says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Even the angel told Mary before Jesus was born, this is who Christ will be. God is going to give him the throne of his father David and he will reign on it. Christ will judge from David's throne. You can go back to the title slide there, Jacob. Thank you. See, this judgment is essential because it determines who's going to enter the millennial kingdom with Christ and who will not. Because in essence, those who believe are his sheep and they're placed on his right. But those who are unbelievers are the goats and they're placed on his left. And notice the basis for this judgment is the works, which are the fruit of their salvation, not the root. Did you hear what I just said? Works do not save us. You're saying, well, then why are they being judged on their works? Works are not the root. Works don't save us. But if you are saved, part of being redeemed is God begins to work in you and those works come out and through you. Works will come out. Is a sign, a visible manifestation that you have been redeemed. And here's what happens to the goats, those who have not done these things for the Lord. Look at verse 41 in Matthew 25. Then he will also say to those on his left, we're talking to the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then notice what it says. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Why do they respond that way? They think they did enough. Jesus, we did those things. We were good enough, right? The scale of all of my good works, it was just enough, right? 
And then Jesus will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. And more, more than likely, these are the Gentiles who were living on the earth, survived the seven-year period of tribulation. They probably did not treat Israel, the repentant Israel, or repentant Gentiles rightly because Antichrist is there and there's a kingdom and there's the mark of the beast. And, and so again, put this in the context of they're in the tribulation. How did you treat the redeemed, those who got saved during the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile alike? And they're judged and they're sentenced to hell. So not only will the unbelieving Israelites, the unbelieving Gentiles be judged, but also Satan. Ha <laughs> ha, now we're getting to the good part. Satan himself will be judged. Again, turn back to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. We're going to pick this up in verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. See, this text, among others, is one of the challenges that people have that are on mill. Because they say, well, he was bound when Christ died. That's when Satan was bound, as if Satan is bound now. Do you think Satan is bound now? Doesn't seem like it. It seems like it's only getting worse. This text, taken literally, says that at this time, the second coming, an angel has the keys and a chain. He wraps the chains around Satan takes Satan, physically throws Satan into this abyss. Now, what is it, why is it called abyss or pit? That's different from the lake of fire. I've got a whole bunch of verses on there from Jude 6, 1 Peter 3. You can read those later. The pit, the pit is a place, it's, it's kind of like a jail. It's a place of temporary incarceration. So when I was a cop and I arrested someone, I would take them to the police station, and inside the police station we had a jail where I would put them in there and go book them and do all the paperwork. That was a temporary place where they waited before they got sentenced, and then they got sentenced to the big house, which is what? Prison, maximum security. The abyss is jail. So these demons, these evil demons, have been put in the pit waiting for their final sentencing before they get thrown into the prison. Max security. And what's that? That's the lake of fire, which we're going to talk about later. So that's what this pit is. And notice it says that it's sealed so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. It's an amazing thought. This means Satan will have absolutely no power to influence the world, to tempt, or to blind the minds of unbelievers throughout the full thousand-year reign. Can you imagine? And according to Revelation 27, after a thousand years, he's going to be released from prison where the final battle of Gog and Magog takes place. That leads up to the great white throne. And then Satan and his demonic helpers are thrown into the lake of fire. So what's the point of all these judgments? simply means that anyone who is alive at second, the second coming of Christ, who is actively rebelling, who is rejecting Christ, will be judged and removed from the earth, which in turn paves the way 
to restore the righteous kingdom on earth, which leads us to the blessing on the believing. Again, all of those saved during the tribulation period, all of those who survived the persecution of those seven years will be blessed, will be ushered into the millennial kingdom. This would involve the believing Jews. Again, thinking back to those passages in Matthew 25, these are the five wise virgins who were prepared for the coming of the groom. These are the faithful steward who took the talent and used it to please God and obey. It says, enter into your rest, enter into the joy of your master. So they get ushered into the millennial kingdom. This includes the believing Gentiles. Again, these are the sheep separated from the goats. They're called righteous in Matthew 25, 46. And it says these go into eternal life. And both the Old Testament saints as well as those saints killed during the tribulation will be resurrected, given glorified bodies, and brought into the millennial kingdom to receive this blessing as well. Again, the church got our raptured bodies at the, at the judgment seat. This is where all the Old Testament saints get theirs. And you can look through those passages in Daniel and Ezekiel. Because even in Daniel 12, 13, shows that Daniel himself will be resurrected for his allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel believed even he himself would be resurrected to enjoy this millennial earthly kingdom. So Daniel, Abraham, Noah, all the others would be resurrected as well and ushered into the millennial kingdom. And then, of course, also the saints, the saints who were, were killed during the tribulation, they will be resurrected. That's what happens here in, in Revelation 24. He see, he, John says, I saw thrones, they sat upon them, judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. These are the martyrs. Because of the word of God. And then it says at the end that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these are all of those who become Christians in the tribulation period, Gentiles, and get killed for it. This is when they get resurrected and get glorified bodies. Now think about this. There are two groups that are coming into the millennial kingdom that do not have glorified bodies. These are all of the Jews and Gentiles who survived the seven-year period of tribulation. At the same time, now the church is there. Now the resurrected Old Testament saints are there. Now those who were killed during the tribulation are there, all with glorified bodies. Can you imagine for a thousand years living in a kingdom where Satan is in prison, can't influence us, and we are living side by side with glorified bodies and non-glorified bodies? That's what the millennial kingdom, that's what happens because the millennial kingdom is going to get repopulated. There's going to be more people. And in fact, what we're going to see at the end of the millennial kingdom, they revolt. Even though Satan's in the pit, all the children of those people who survived the tribulation generations for a thousand years, some of them will reject Christ. And they end up having a, a whole war. That, that's a little preview for next week. So it's an amazing thought. Well, let's look at this. And I was just thinking about that. If I was survived the tribulation and I was in a non-glorified body and my friend had a glorified body, would I want to play tennis with him? Isn't that amazing? That's what I thought of. That was my illustration for that point. Okay, let's move on. The admonitions in light of Christ's coming. What do we get from this? Well, just really quickly, two things. We get watchfulness. We must all be watchful because we don't know how much time we have left. In fact, Jesus warns us in Mark 13, 33, 
Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. I just want to challenge you this morning. Don't assume that you have time. You must prepare. You must take precautions for Christ's coming now. Because the reality is, do you know if Christ is coming back as your Redeemer or as your Executioner? Well, I'm here to tell you, if you don't know the answer to that question, we would love to visit with you so that you can know, so that you can walk from these doors knowing I have confidence that when Christ comes back, He is my Redeemer. We must be watchful. That includes a bit of awe. I don't know about you, but when I read these texts about Christ and about His coming, I am in awe of who He is. It makes me thankful that He would die for me. And then be seriousness. It's not just watchfulness in light of Christ's coming. It's seriousness in the severity of judgment. It's eternal consequences. This calls for sobriety. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 states, For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. This is the second coming. There may be signs leading up to it, but we don't know when it will come. It's unannounced. It's unexpected. And because of this truth, in verse 6, Paul exhorts us, let us be sober and alert. Why? Because verse 3 says, destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pain. This is the wrath of God coming. Christian, how should the thought of your unsaved loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, who do not know Christ, experiencing the full wrath of Christ the King, how is that going to motivate you to action this week? What will you do differently? How will you pray differently? How will you consider how to use your conversations around the water cooler at school or at YMCA or line at Walmart, how are you going to choose to use those conversations differently? Because this is also a sobering reminder that while we are called to present the gospel, while we are called to live the gospel, only God can change the hard heart. It amazes me that there are going to be people standing on this earth when Christ comes back. They are going to see him in all of his triumphant glory and power, and they are still going to say, no. I hope that gives some of you hope, because you may have a loved one who continues to reject Christ. Don't give up. Pray that God would do the work that only God can do. Amen? sobering reminder. Well, in conclusion this morning, we have examined five aspects of Christ's second coming. In fact, Philippians 2.10 exhorts us to never forget that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Father. The reality is that someday each and every one of us will confess Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the reality is, He is coming back for some of us as Redeemer, and some of us will be forced to bend the knee when He comes as Conqueror. 
Which is it for you? I pray that this would be the day that you choose Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is sobering as we consider the second coming of your Son. But we are grateful for the clarity of your word. Not only do we know what will happen, not only does it give us hope for those of us who are in Christ, but it warns this world to be ready. It warns this world that they do not have to endure the coming wrath. That if they would but repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior, that they would have Christ coming as their Redeemer. Lord, would you do that work? If there's anyone in this room right now that does not know you, Lord, would you break them of their pride, of their, their, their desire to say no to you? No, I don't want to do it your way. I don't want to think your way. I don't want to follow your word. Would you break them of that pride? And in humility, would you show them that the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, that the love that we receive from you is far greater than anything in this world. Would you show them their need for a Savior, Lord, for your glory we ask. And in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.